Welcome to Kramer Says. Kramer Says. Common sense conservative news and views. Be part of the show at KramerSays.com. Now, Kramer Says. And we are live. Welcome to the Kramer Says Podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 1. My name is Kramer. First of all, thanks for joining us. Um, we're um, we're excited to be bringing information into your home or into your head or into your ears um, that gives you insights that you may not be getting from outside sources, uh, especially the mainstream media. Um, and that includes everybody. So this is not just uh, focused on the liberal mainstream media. This is looking at the conservative mainstream media as well. Uh, they've got their sins that they're committing, and, and, and they're not going to be uh, left out when we talk about the mainstream media. Um, we look at uh, information as being viable for a free society. And if you can't have a free society, if you can't freely communicate information back and forth, or as a mainstream media outlet, and we've seen this time and time again, that if you refuse to cover news, that's the same as lying. So here recently, for example, you'll see the mainstream media making big headlines about what's going on in New York uh, with the AG of the state of New York going after Trump. But you won't hear anything about the same thing going on in New York with Ghislaine Maxwell. They try to hide that information. They, they, they want to pimp Trump as being a criminal, but when we've got a real criminal who's actually been indicted and convicted, they mention nothing about it. So the focus of what Kramer says uh, and the podcast and the website is going to be from this point on is, is giving you information that um, you're not getting from outside sources. Um, in addition to giving you this information, we'll also be citing where we're getting the information from so that you can go get it for yourself if you want. Um, we'll be doing that both in the stories, uh, in conversation and so on, uh, as well as um, on the website. So the Kramer Says website, you'll be able to get the citations of where we're getting our information from. For example, this story here. Let's start out with a, with a hot one. Um, this is reported on... Um, July 26th of 2020, but it tells you what's going on in the country. Now, this is from a while ago, but I thought that this the story was important because it showcases what happens in society when our, our judicial system doesn't work. And it doesn't work for the victims or the citizens. It works for the perpetrators instead. Um, there's a point at which society will only allow that to happen for so long. So in, um, in Ocala, Florida... Um, <laughs> this is a story that uh, should have made, should have received more inf more attention, and it just didn't. Um, pedophile's decapitated corpse found on judge's doorstep after bail hearing in Ocala, Florida. Now, there's going to be a lot of people out there when they find out about what this guy was uh, alleged to have done, what his uh, history is, that uh, this seems fair. Now, I'm not advocating for anybody to go out there and decapitate pedophiles, but if you do... Um, you're not alone. The uh, The story goes that the decapitated corpse that was found on a judge's doorstep in Ocala, Florida, has been identified as belonging to a notorious pedophile, notorious, they, so they knew that he was out there, a notorious pedophile who was recently allowed to walk free on bail by the judge, according to reports. Now, William Smith, he was 28 years old, was discovered in the early hours of Tuesday morning, decapitated and slumped against the front door of the judge, who had granted him bail in August. Now, I'll let that sink in. Imagine you, you go to your door, right, and there's a dead body there. Not just a dead body, but a dead body missing its head and the head's in its lap. 
Uh, Smith, the uh, perpetrator, the alleged perpetrator, was arrested last month following this is again, this is back in 2020. Smith was arrested last month following allegations by his then girlfriend that he had raped her eight year old daughter. After a police investigation in which Smith was found in possession of child pornography, that's the first sign, right? They always go for the pornography first. Then they have to eventually act it out. It's, it's the same in all sex crimes. Um, they generally go through pornography first. Uh, when that no longer excites them, they have to go to the next level, which is actually acting out um, their, their lust or their, their desires. Uh, and we see this now. In the LGBTQ community, where they're trying, some, not all, um, some are trying to add in or give treatment, uh, making room for pedophiles. They say that they should be able to add P to the LGBTQ community um, group of letters uh, because it has to do with sex. And that, yeah, I'm sexually attracted to children, but I've never done anything. Well, what this shows here, this story here shows that once pornography is no longer enough, then you have to move to actually harming the child. Now, I would say that even the pornography is is child is child harm. You cannot you cannot have a picture of a child being molested and that not be a crime. So even the act of 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 lusting after a, a, an image in a photo is a crime. And uh, we, we've got to wrap our heads around this whole thing that there's no room for saying, well, I'm a pedophile, but I'm not acting on it. If they have the lust, if they have the desire, right, they're going to move on. Whether, whether they go on to just pornography and they never harm a child themselves, my position is if they're looking at child porn, then they're harming a child by proxy. That child had to be harmed for them to be able to have that image. And, and so, therefore, they've, they, they've got to be held accountable. Again, there's no room at all for child harm or child pornography. Anyway, let's go on. Um, After a police investigation in which Smith was found in possession of child pornography, he was arrested on two counts related to child pornography and one count of child molestation. Now, here's where it gets really weird. After being charged, Smith walked free from the court after the judge controversially ruled that he did not pose a threat to the local community. Now, the guy's already got child porn. That means that a child had to be harmed for him to have access to that material. He's okay with harming a child so that he can get his jollies while jerking off or doing whatever he's doing, looking at child porn. That's the only reason you have it, and that child had to be harmed. So, yes, someone who has access to child porn or has child porn materials uh, in their possession, yes, they've already harmed a child. They've proven that they're willing to have a child harmed so they can get their, jo- their, their their jollies. So after being charged, Smith walked free from the court after the judge controversially ruled that he did not pose a threat to the local community, and he raised the necessary $30,000 bail required to trigger his freedom. Now, the alleged victim's family said they were shocked that he was allowed out of jail. Wouldn't you be, wouldn't you be shocked? Wouldn't you be pissed off if you found out that your child had been, been molested and, and, and the molester, the alleged perpetrator had images of other children on their laptop or on their computer in their possession. And the judge says that's not enough. That doesn't pose enough threat. I mean, one picture, let's think about this. One picture is one child harmed. Two pictures, if they're different children, are two children harmed. 
Well, generally, these perpetrators have thousands of images on their computers. That's thousands of children that had to be harmed for him to be able to get his jollies, for him to be able to masturbate. And yes, this podcast, by the way, will be very crass. A lot of cussing, a lot of words that adults use to talk about serious issues. If you're, if you're not crazy about a lot of fucking cussing and a lot of motherfuckers doing bad shit, this is probably the wrong podcast for you. The alleged victim's family said they were shocked that Smith had been allowed to walk free from court. Smith was awaiting trial for his crimes and was awaiting a court date, which was due to be scheduled for later this year. This, again, is in 2020. However, it seems that somebody from the local community decided to take matters into their own hands. The judge, whose name has been withheld, was awoken around 3 a.m. by his frenzied barking dog. So this is what's amazing to me. Someone not only was brazen enough to murder and decapitate this alleged pedophile, but then they were brazen enough to go drop that body and the head off on the, the, the front doorstep of the judge who allowed that person out of jail in the first place. The judge, whose name has been withheld, was awoken around 3 a.m. by his frenzied barking dog. When he went outside to find out what the dog was barking about, he found the decapitated body of the man he had allowed to walk free slumped against his front door with the severed head left on the steps. Investigating officers described the scene as resembling a gangland-style execution. Yeah. <laughs> it's sending a message. The message is, don't fuck with our kids. Don't allow people to fuck with our kids. That's the message. I hope to God that other judges got that message. Now, again, I don't, I don't advocate for this. Right? We don't want... Vigilantes out there walking the streets, taking justice as they say, see fit. Um, we're a land of laws. But when this happens, that should be a wake-up call to pedophiles. That your day of, of reigning over our children and being a threat to our children are over. And that this, this can happen. This is a possibility. Not guaranteed to happen, but it's a possibility. A local resident said of the horrifying discovery that finding a headless body was, in quotes, an unusual occurrence. Yeah, I'd say so. This is a nice area. This is the kind of thing that usually happens in mob films, but not around here, in quotes. Police say they are currently following leads, but have yet to make any arrest for the murder. Well, as long as we've got one pedophile off the street, I think we've moved in the right direction. By the way, there's, no, um, there's been no follow-up on that case. We haven't heard anything about anybody actually being charged with the, uh, the murder of Smith. So if we find anything out, we'll, we'll uh, give you uh, information. Let's move, to, uh, let's move to more current events. This is, um, this is back in uh, 2021 um, in November. Uh, I'm sorry, this was in October of 2021. And it was one of the first stories that we heard coming out about the jab. Uh, and the reason we're giving some old news is to catch everybody up to what, where we're going and the information that we'll be giving uh, moving forward. Um, in 2021... Um, a six-year-old boy from Santa Maria, Portugal, uh, was, it was reported that he had passed away just days after receiving the first dose of uh, the Pfizer COVID-19 injection. Now, this is a six-year-old child in Portugal. He died from cardiac arrest. He had a heart attack after receiving the first dose of Pfizer, uh, Pfizer's COVID-19 shot. shot. Um, a six-year-old boy from Santa Maria, Portugal, has passed away days after receiving the first dose of the experimental Pfizer-19 COVID injection. The 
hospital said in a statement that the child was admitted to the hospital with a condition of cardiorespiratory arrest, meaning the child was suffering from a heart attack. It suspected the boy had an adverse reaction from the injection taken days before his tragic death. The hospital issued a statement saying, we confirmed that we received the notification on Monday, January 17th, of a suspected adverse reaction, and this is being treated by Infarmed in conjunction with the regional unit of pharmacological vigilance of Lisbon. And I can't re- pronounce those words. Those, uh, <laughs> I don't know what their words are. Sedibule centerum. Experts from the agency will carry out an autopsy and present the results as they become available. Portugal began inoculating 5 to 11-year-old children on December 18th after the country's health authority, DGS, approved the Pfizer-19, the, the, the Pfizer COVID-19 jab on December 7th. For that age group. So a six-year-old child dies of a heart attack. Um, It makes the news uh, as far as the internet, but it doesn't make national news. Why? Because they're suppressing any bad information about the jab. They do not want any information getting out about the jab. In fact, it was just, uh, I think it was in Utah, it was just um, uh, reported that uh, hospital members admit that they're not they're not filling out the VAR system as required by law for any adverse reactions to the jab. Why? Well, because they have an ideological bent. They want to be on the right side of history. They think that what they're doing is the right thing by withholding information that it's good. It's never good for society, ever, for with information, especially important information, to be withheld from the public. It's just, it's just not. Uh, let's take a look at uh, what's going on in Virginia. Now, Virginia, the, the governor there, has just taken um, control of the state. Youngkin has just been sworn in. Uh, and as soon as he was sworn in, he uh, he released a, a slew of executive orders. And the biggest one being a ban on critical race theory. Uh, this story came from uh, CBN News um, on, uh, what's the date here? Does it give the date? It doesn't give the date. Oh, it looks like uh, the 19th. So the 19th of January, just a couple of days ago. Um, thousands of Virginians endured the cold on Saturday to see their new governor sworn in. Republican Glenn Youngkin took the oath here at the state capitol, and the new governor is already off to a brisk start. A lot of people in the crowd told CBN News they voted for Youngkin because he is promising change for Virginia, a process he said he would start on day one, and which he did, along with along with um, his uh, his newest uh, attorney general for the state, uh, issued a ton of different uh, orders and fired 30 employees out of the AG's office or the Department of Justice, uh, the AG's office in, in um, Virginia. Uh, true to his word, Youngkin fired off nearly a dozen executive orders soon after taking office on Saturday, including a ban on critical race theory in public education. He also ended mask mandates in schools, ended a vaccine mandate for state workers, terminated the Virginia Parole Board, and established a commission to combat anti-Semitism. Now, those are all good things, in my view. Some others would say maybe not, but in my view, those are all positive moves. We need to give people the freedom to make their own decisions. And when there's mandates in place, it says, your opinion doesn't matter, much like a small child, right? Small children, we do this to. Your opinion doesn't matter. I'm your parent. I will take care of you. Well, that's fine with children. But when one adult does that to another adult and says, listen, you've got to take my word. Don't trust your instincts. Trust my authority. That's what's happening. And uh, Youngkin uh, is the first Republican to actually step up uh, and and start pushing back against these, these programs and so on. 
The day began with a jubilant crowd cheering Virginia's 74th governor. Governor Youngkin told his supporters, my fellow Virginians, the spirit of Virginia is alive and well. He promised to restore trust in government and power to the people. To be clear, the spirit of Virginia, he's quoting here, this is Youngkin. To be clear, the spirit of Virginia is not a spirit that is rested in government telling us what is best for us, but rather reflecting the will of the people, defending and protecting. That right there, that is a, isn't that novel? That we should be able to, to have self-determination, that that we as American citizens should be able to be free to decide what's best for us and our families instead of somebody uh, at the state capitol or at the federal capitol or at his home in Delaware, that we know what's best for our families. We, we don't need some outside source telling us what's best for our families. We'll make that determination on our own. And anything that you have to mandate, any science that you have to mandate that people follow either means the science isn't real, the leadership, the authority isn't real, or both. People should be able to make a determination based on the signs that they see, the, the information that they gather. And that's not happening, not currently. Um, the government is saying, we know best. Your children, you're not capable of making these decisions on your own. We'll make them for you. And it's wrong. I mean, I, anybody who, who says otherwise is a moron. Uh, two other newly elected Republicans, Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears and Attorney General Jason Mieres, I that's another one. I got to get better on the pronounce, <laughs> how to pronounce these names, uh, made history. Sears is the first woman of color. And uh, my, I, I'm going to have to get Mieres is the first Latino to hold statewide office. I'll get better at these names, I promise. So what we've got is we've got a bunch of first, we've got a bunch of people that have, have been elected specifically to take action. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I'm working with Tom Heck out in uh, Nevada. He's running for governor. We've been told by everybody in the establishment that he has no chance at all of winning because he's raised nearly zero dollars. But his message is strong. And that's what the American people right now are looking for. They're looking for people that have a backbone, a spine, and are willing to do the right thing regardless of what the powers that be say and move forward and work for the people. And that's what Tom Heck is going to be doing in Nevada. I can't wait to get out there uh, in February to, to join his team and, and help him uh, hit the ground running. Let's talk about um, fake news for a moment. Um, fake news headquarters, CNN, they've got a real problem on their hands. They really do. CNN viewership has fallen 80% from a year ago. Now, that's good news. That's good information. What that means is less people are relying on CNN as their source for news. Um, this story comes from um, LifeSite News. It was published on um, the 19th as well. Left-wing cable news outlet CNN saw its viewership for the week of the anniversary of the January 6th, 2021 Capitol riots fall by a massive 80% compared to last year at the same time, while more than two and a half times as many viewers opted to watch right-leaning Fox News during the same week. So CNN's losing audience. Fox News is getting it. I'd have to think that OAN and Newsmax and some of these other outlets are getting it as well. But that shows you what's happening is there's there's a huge push, um, a, a, hu a, a huge migration of, of, of people who have been listening to CNN and realizing that they're nothing but opinion and fake news. Now, <clears throat> I'll give you the, my opinion is that Fox News is no different, right? Um, what I'm doing right now is opinion. This is not news. I'm giving you information about what's going on around the planet, but my opinion on top of that. That's not news. I may be educating you. I may be enlightening you. Um, but the moment I give my opinion, it's no longer unbiased. 
I have a bias. I'm right-leaning. I'm conservative. I'm going to come from that, that position. I say that up front. You know that up front. But CNN, they're not supposed to do that. Fox News isn't supposed to do that. There shouldn't be a conservative or liberal news outlet. It should just be the news. Here's the information, free of bias. But the moment the left found out that they had the ability to make a lot of money and push a narrative, that's what they did. Both CNN and MSNBC um, are, are famous for being far, far left. Well, MSNBC is in the same, the same boat. CNN is tanking because people have realized that they're fake news, that it's all opinion. And the opinion is based on misinformation. We we just saw what happened with Judge Sotomayor, the justice, the Supreme Court justice, who was so misinformed that if I had said the same thing, if I had put that in a post online, that information would have been flagged as misinformation. She said it from the bench of the Supreme Court. That's dangerous. That's why we've got to get away on both sides of delivering information that is based on a, a political bias. It just has to be the information. We've got to get back to the who, what, when, where, why, right? Now, the why is always that question. Why was this done? That's a personal. When you say why, that's personal. You're giving an opinion at why, right? Unless it's stated by the perpetrator or by the people in the story, this is why they did something. So why did people go into the building at the Capitol on the 6th? Why did, why did they go in? I think I know why. I didn't go in. I was there. I didn't go in. That's not why I was there. The reason I was there was to, uh, to regress my grievances, to, to, to vocalize my grievances with elected officials. Going inside that building did not meet that criteria. CNN, on the other hand, they're in trouble. They're in trouble because the story they told about January 6th and other information that they've given over the last year, year and a half, two years, well, the last several years, um, has been deemed as misinformation because it's lies, right? I mean, we, we knew from the beginning, we were told masks, 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 wear your mask, wear your mask, wear your mask. Um, and, and we knew from the beginning they didn't work because the label on the side of the box says they don't protect you from viral spread. Don't listen to the, don't read the label on the side. Don't pay attention to that. Pay attention to us. That's what CNN was saying. Don't believe what you can read. Don't believe what's been stated legally because... Here's the thing about these these mask uh, liability statements. The reason that is on there is that it relieves them from liability in case that mask doesn't work. Now, they know that cloth masks do not work against viral spread. N95 masks, more effective, do not stop viral spread. Surgical masks, more effective, still do not stop viral spread. That's not an opinion. That's not my opinion. That is fact. You can take it to the bank. And it's so factual that they actually put that on the side of the mask. They put that on the liability um, statement for that product because they don't want to be sued. They don't want to be sued when somebody comes in and says, hey, listen, um, your mask didn't protect me uh, from the virus. And so now you owe me millions of dollars. I wore your mask every day. And that's what would happen. We're a very litigious society. So they put that on there because the mask does not protect you. It does not do what you want it to do. I don't care how many masks you wear. It, unless you're suffocated and you're incapable of breathing, masks will not protect you 
from the virus. They just won't. Even N95s, if you know what an N95 mask in is, the reason it's N95 is that it protects you from 95% of bacteria and dust. Anybody who knows anything about virology knows that a virus is substantially smaller, up to 300,000 times smaller than bacteria or a grain of dust. So if it's that much smaller and can get through the mask, then the N95 doesn't protect you either. It's better. Right? It's a it's a tighter fitting mask um, than the cloth or the surgical masks, but it still doesn't protect you um, from a virus that is substantially smaller than the dust particles that the N95 is meant to protect you from. And there, it only protects you up to 95%. 95% of those particles. 5% still get through. So, you know, it's important that we we, we keep in mind what these news outlets like CNN have been telling us for the last two, three, four years. These are, these are the same people who told us that Russia tried to hijack the election in 2016, right? And that it was completely fair in 2020, that there was no hanky business in 2020. That's what they want you to believe. That's why their ratings are in the tank. The viewership averages for CNN are strikingly low when compared to the soaring 2.7 million average daily viewers the network raked in in the same week last year. So they're down to 548,000 from 2.7 million. Some in the ballparks of a loss of some in the ballparks of 2.2 million viewers a day. That's revenue. That's money. That, that equates to real money. Why anyone would advertise anything on CNN at this point is beyond me. It's a waste of money. Their, their rates should be dropping substantially. Um, and it, if you take into effect, by the way, that the vast majority of CNN's viewership is driven by airport TVs that are turned on and spewing their bullshit 24-7 to empty auditoriums or empty uh, airways, um, that, helps their, that helps their ratings. But now that they're really measuring it, you, you see that they don't have the ratings that they've been touting for years. They are not the nation's number one news source. Most strikingly, CNN's numbers for the week in the year-over-year -year comparison paled in comparison with rival Fox News, which topped national ratings by averaging 1.41 million total daily viewers for the week, uh, for the week and 2.3 million primetime viewers, making it the most-watched network on basic cable in the Monday through Sunday, 6 a.m. to 6 a.m. time period. That's from TV Newser. Um, they're reporting that information. So... CNN's in trouble. Now, here's the thing. Not only is CNN in trouble, but the entire system, the, the entire left system is in trouble. From Antifa to Black Lives Matter to the DNC to the Democratic Party um, in state-by-state -state comparisons, they have problems across the board. In the latest, in the latest um, polls, um, there's a 14-point spread now between straight-line voters um, voting for Republicans or Democrats. 14 points. That's huge. So um, what we're going to see here in the next what we're going to see here in the next few months uh, is a very desperate and very scared Democratic Party, um, members of the mainstream media that are going to attempt to regain their power. Now, there's only one way that they can do that. That's by putting their their boot even harder on the necks of Americans.
That's the only way that it happens. Here's the concern that we have. So here Kramer says, we've been looking at the information coming in from around the country and the steps that Democrats have already taken up to this point. Um, their willingness to either bend or break laws, especially election laws, and based on past history, what they've done from 2020, 2016, and so on, what can we expect in 2022? Well, here's the thinking. If you, like many others, believe that the Democrat Party was culpable in crimes against both humanity and crimes against voters, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, so on, if you believe that was the case in 2020, and is still currently going on with the crimes against humanity, with these forced vaccinations and so on, if you believe that that's the case, they know you believe that. They're not stupid. The left is not going to allow, they can't allow Republicans to take power in the House and Senate after the 22 elections. They can't. They just can't. There's no way that they can allow that to happen. Because the moment that they allow that to happen, they know that the investigations start. They know that what happened in Virginia with the attorney general coming in and gutting that department, cutting 30 employees out of that department immediately, they know that the same thing is going to happen at the federal level. They know that the Senate is going to launch investigations. They know that the House is going to launch investigations. And it won't be this Mueller bullshit that lasts for 20 years before any indictments are brought forward. I mean, how many years are we into the Mueller investigation, and we've only had two indictments so far? Now, there's a bunch of sealed indictments, but until those are, are revealed to the public, we have no motion, we have no movement whatsoever with the Mueller investigation. But I can guarantee you, Republicans take the House, Republicans take the Senate, Democrats, the left, they know that they're going to be investigated, and they can't allow that to happen. So what we expect, what we've seen from the information that we've, we've gathered is that we don't expect the 22 election, how do we put this um, bluntly? <laughs> we don't expect the 22 election to happen. We don't see how they can allow it to happen. Um, you saw what the Democrats just did with trying to federalize federal elections because they want control. They want control taken away from the states. Now, is it constitutional? According to the Constitution, it is. The federal government can make laws about elections. Um, they haven't done so. They've always left that up to the states, but they have the authority to do that via the Constitution. They can do that. The question we have to ask is if, if we allow the federal government to now control what happens in our elections, will that be any different than the school board or the Department of Education mandating what schools teach across the country, how they spend their money? Have you ever seen the government, the federal government, increase freedoms or liberties? No, just the opposite. So this move by the Democrats to federalize federal elections has to be seen for what it is. It's a power grab. If you were part of the election process in 2020 and you saw crimes happening 
basically what they wanted to do was silence you. You would no longer be able to speak out. In particular, states would not have the authority to do any investigation that wasn't deemed necessary by this this federal body, whatever that would be turn out to be. It removes powers from the state and gives it to the federal government. Now, in the old days, the states had to willingly give up that power. And today, the states aren't giving it up. The federal government's just taking it. And that's the danger. In fact, what the Biden administration and Democrats have just tried to do, um, by getting rid of the filibuster and by invoking these new laws, is one of the most dangerous things that any government body or group has done in this country in years. And if you can't see what they've just tried to do as a threat to democracy instead of what they're selling it as, then you're part of the problem. And um, we've got enough problems. So let's keep the federal government's hand out of local elections, federal elections. We can allow the states to continue to do that. Either the 2020 election was the most secure ever or it wasn't. And if it wasn't, then we should probably go back and look, take a look at it. If it was, then there's no need, there's no reason to federalize federal elections in the country. And with that said, we'll wrap up segment one of the first episode of the Kramer Says Podcast. Um, as I, as promised, we will get better with this uh, as we move along. Um, we were kind of rushed in getting this out the door. Uh, we'd talked about it for months, but um, there was a point where it became evident that we had to get this rolling. So we're kind of feeling our way through things. So please be patient with us. Um, in our next segment, we're going to be talking to Peter Flaherty of the National Legal and Policy Center. They're a, a watchdog group out of D.C. And Peter wants to address the issue of anti-Semitism at the corporate level and what companies like Ben & Jerry's or Unilever are doing um, to promote anti-Semitism throughout the Middle East. We'll talk about that coming up next. And we're back. Kramer Says is on. Welcome back to segment two of the Kramer Says Podcast. My name is Kramer, and today we'll be talking to two different gentlemen. Uh, one is Peter Flaherty. He's with the National Legal and Policy Center, a watchdog group out of D.C. We'll also be talking to an author who has written a new book talking about an American divorce. Do we need one? So these are the next two segments. Now, first, we'll be talking to Peter Flaherty. He's the chairman and chief executive officer of the National Legal and Policy Center, the NLPC, which he co-founded with Ken Bohm back in 1991. Um, welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you, Tim. Good to be here. Let's start at the beginning. What is the NLPC and what's its mission? The National Legal and Policy Center promotes ethics and public life. That's kind of a fancy way of saying we expose corruption. And... Uh, our MO over the years differs from most other groups. Uh, what we do is we do original research, find corruption, partner with uh, investigative journalists with more mainstream media outlets. Often they will add value to the project by doing some of their own reporting, and they can do things that we can't do, like calling targets of our research to get comment. Then the product uh, appears and reaches a much wider audience through these media outlets. Over the years, we've had five front page stories in the Wall Street Journal based on our research. We've had three front page stories based on our research in the New York Times. Now, we usually don't hit the front page, but we, uh, we've been involved in many issues over the years in exposing scandals and corruption. Uh, we've had some real coups over the years. Our original claim to fame was that we successfully sued Hillary Clinton's healthcare task force because she had closed the records and, and meetings. 
We succeeded in that. It helped to drive a nail into the coffin uh, of her health plan. The secrecy was very controversial and worked against her. Yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same, huh? Right. I mean, that was that was a long time ago now, and, and she's still with us. Um, we exposed the Boeing tanker deal scandal about a dozen years ago. We sent two Boeing executives to prison. But better than that, we saved taxpayers more than $4 billion. And we've had many other um, breakthroughs over the years. And uh, at a certain point, we realized that not all the corruption was in government, that there was quite a lot happening in corporate America that we should pay attention to. So we launched the Corporate Integrity Project. As part of that project, we do corporate campaigns, and we can talk about our Ben and Jerry's campaign in a moment. But we also do shareholder activism. We file uh, shareholder proposals. We own stock in uh, a score of companies. And this has really been more the purview of the left. They've made great progress in pressuring companies to move in a left-wing direction. And we've seen... Now, let me jump in on you there and have you explain what shareholder activism actually is. What does that mean? Uh, my understanding is that you buy stock in a company so that you have access to the annual shareholder meeting, correct? Yeah, the annual meeting of shareholders. Uh, there, are, there are requirements, but, but in theory, a shareholder can uh, file a resolution. It must be printed in the proxy with a supporting statement. Uh, then you have the right to speak at the annual meeting. And generally, uh, you have a captive audience in the CEO and the board. The only exception to that is Amazon. Uh, Jeff Bezos is too important to um, attend his own annual meeting. So I did make an issue of that at the Amazon annual meeting a couple of years ago. But in general, you have a wonderful audience there and an opportunity to directly uh, address the board and, uh, and the CEO. Management and the founders of these companies generally control either a large percentage of the stock or a majority. So if they don't like what you're doing, you're going to lose. But you nonetheless uh, have the opportunity to raise these issues. It's also an opportunity to get media for, uh, for the point you're trying to make. Now, there are some corporate governance issues that we're promoting this year. For instance, at a number of companies like Coca-Cola, we have a proposal to separate the role of CEO and chairman. Now, this is just plain good corporate governance, and it's likely the advisory forms will endorse our, our proposal, and it's likely it will pass, which is all well and good. But our real motivation in, in filing it was an opportunity to challenge the credibility and leadership of the Coca-Cola CEO, James Quincy. Uh, you may remember a uh, few months back, uh, Quincy, although he's a British citizen, called uh, Georgia's new voter integrity law unacceptable. And he announced that Coca-Cola would lobby for H.R. 1, the Biden sweeping power grab to federalize elections, which is on Congress's plate right now. So there was a lot of blowback on that. And we, we are adding to that blowback. Uh, we're going to bring it directly to him and, and raise it at the annual meeting. So what you're saying is that sometimes it's better to be a loud squeaky wheel at the annual shareholder meeting than it is to actually try to go directly to Congress to have these things taken care of, correct? Yeah, unfortunately, Tim, uh, the left figured that out long before the right did. <laughs> now, now, things just got so bad in the last year or two that even people like Mitch McConnell, who has been an ally of corporate America for decades, uh, took to the Senate floor to to warn them that their you know, newfound allies on the left are going to create problems for them. And we'll see if there's a follow through. Uh, I think the Republican Party and corporate America, America need a divorce. I don't, I don't think it's likely uh, in the short term, at least. But I do think that if the Republican Party uh, and we're not we're not a political group where, you know, we expose corruption, but just this is just an observation. If the, if the Republican Party is serious about becoming a majority party, representing working people 
and people who are not wealthy that it should run as fast as it can away from corporate America. That brings us around kind of full circle in your mission to expose corruption. Um, There's a story that you've been running on both the NLPC.org site as well as a subsequent site. Uh, That site is StopBenAndJerry's.com. And there you've been focusing on uh, the actions of Ben and Jerry's uh, and and their parent company, Unilever. The story is amazing. Um, It covers uh, international politics. uh, It covers anti-Semitism at the corporate level and ice cream, which is a, a weird combination. Can you tell us about what's going on with Ben and Jerry's? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to corporate America, uh, Ben and Jerry's is kind of the worst of the worst. Um, now, they've been at it so long and they're just so extreme that people probably don't take them seriously. They try to portray themselves as happy hippies and, you know, they have peace signs and bright colors on their stores and so forth. But uh, what once started as kind of um, happy-go-lucky liberalism, perhaps, has kind of just evolved into ugly, hard-left politics They've, they've been involved with any number of issues now. Uh, for instance, abortion. Is abortion and ice cream a good mix? I don't think so. Absolutely not. I can guarantee you it is not. Yeah, I mean, regardless of how you feel about that issue, it just it's just not a good mix. Right. Very disturbingly, and, and what caught our attention is that uh, Ben and Jerry's announced that they would end ice cream sales in the disputed territories of Israel. And in our mind, they crossed the line where there must be a response this was a, a big breakthrough for the BDS movement. BDS stands for Boycott, Divest, and Sanction. And it's a movement that's been around for years, but it's only had one goal over that time, over that period of time, and that's the destruction of Israel. They were a little bit on the ropes. Uh, the Abraham Accords, which were um, signed during the, the Trump administration, but fully embraced and supported by the Biden administration, which was uh, a framework for the normalization of relations between Israel and a number of Muslim Arab countries. It was truly a breakthrough, and, and it's progress that can be built upon now. And I, I, you know, I, I know that the Biden administration is trying to do that. Well, in fact, the Abraham Accords have been so successful that they're back in the news now. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, you know, that was a blow to BDS because uh, you had these Arab countries um, accepting the existence of Israel, seeking to normalize relations, accepting that, yes, there is still plenty to be worked out and there's plenty of controversy and plenty of disagreement and plenty of old hatreds and problems, but the progress can be made. Now, BDS rejects all that. They're the enemy of progress. Uh, they want Israel undermined, in the case of some of their leaders, just swept into the sea. So um, BDS was on the ropes and, you know, Ben and Jerry's, these hippies from Vermont come along and, and rescue them. Now, Ben & Jerry's is not a standalone company anymore. They're owned by Unilever, the British multinational. Uh, They were sold 21 years ago, although the two founders, Ben and Jerry, do remain the public face of the company. So we thought it was time for a reaction. So we've launched a campaign called Stop Ben & Jerry's. We have a a website. We're engaged in a number of activities. First and foremost, we're um, asking states to divest their uh, retirement and investment funds from Unilever. And that tactic has proven to be fairly successful, right? Yeah, that, it's, it's really gone well. We started with an advantage because there's a number of states that have anti-BDS uh, laws on their books already. It requires the state to divest if certain conditions exist. And this Ben and Jerry situation kind of triggered um, that. And uh, it's in a state of review in a couple of states, but uh, New York uh, has announced it's going to divest. Arizona, 
Uh, Florida and Texas are probably going to do it. Uh, Illinois has announced that they will do it. And what's interesting, Tim, is that these are you know blue states, red states. These actions are done by Democrat office holders, Republican office holders. There's really quite a lot of bipartisan support for this. And um, we're living in such polarized times. I guess it's nice to have an issue where there's some agreement and we could all work together. It's just sort of the hard left that's uh, sympathetic to what Ben and Jerry's is doing. And I think they're fairly well isolated, although not giving up by any means. So that's been an important part of it. Well, let's go back and talk about exactly what BDS is. BDS stands for Boycott, Divest, and Sanction. How does that actually harm the people of Israel? They um, are very active worldwide, BDS. They do exactly what they promise. They launch boycotts. They encourage divestment. They um, uh, they seek to sanction Israel. For instance, there's academic, worldwide academic um, organizations. They get Israel thrown out. They had a breakthrough with Airbnb. Airbnb said it would no longer take listings in the disputed territories of Israel. Now, there was such a blowback on that that they backed down and uh, they reversed that policy. And what's crazy about this is a company like Unilever sells a lot of ice cream in China and Syria and all these places where there's no semblance of human rights at all. And regardless of how you feel about the latest controversies involving Israel, it is a fact that it's a democracy, that power is determined at the ballot box, not through the barrel of a gun, and that people have rights. Now, there's quite a good and legitimate debate about um, human rights in Israel and, and who's entitled to what and, and, and who's enjoying what. Okay, fine, let's have that debate. But Israel is light years ahead of uh, most countries in the world when it comes to human rights, when it comes to democratic value, when it comes to individual freedom and liberty. And um, that, that really shows how to, out of step a BDS is and what their true mission is. If they, if they were concerned about human rights, um, you know, they'd be boycotting. There's know, a number of other targets that they could go after. There's, there's quite a list, but they pick on Israel. The attack has been on Unilever here recently to to bring awareness to this because they're the big 800-pound gorilla in the room. Uh, Alan Jopa is their CEO. Has there been any feedback from him or any word from him on what you expect Unilever, where you expect them to move in this direction? Do you expect them to continue to to support Ben & Jerry's in this movement? They have uh, been fairly firm in defending their decision. I believe that behind the scenes they are greatly troubled by it. The backlash against what they've done has spread around the world. In this country, in the United States, you have members of the Senate sending letters to uh, Unilever. You have Republican attorney generals sending their own letter. You have these divestment campaigns, which we've already mentioned. I don't think they anticipated this at all. Now, they tried to claim that they adopted the, the moderate position because the head of their board of governors or Ben and Jerry's board of directors, which is not a real board, it's not a governing board, it's just sort of an advisory board, favored a complete boycott of Israel, the entire country. And the Unilever CEO has argued that he didn't want to do that. He limited That's a lot it. of money. But but in doing so, he um, he betrayed the fact that Unilever does indeed have control of what Ben and Jerry's does. Uh, ben and Jerry's has tried to argue that when they were sold to Unilever, Unilever, as part of the agreement, said that they could have their own independent sort of posture on these things. And they formed this, uh, they call it the Ben and Jerry's Board of Directors. And it's not truly a governing board. But in any case, Unilever, on one hand, claims that they have to observe that. And Ben and Jerry's is entitled to their own separate policies. And at the same time, Unilever claims that they rejected a stricter 
version of what Ben and Jerry's has done. So they, they can't have it uh, both ways. And uh, there's a history of anti-Semitism. What we've looked at is that Unilever has a record of being on the wrong side of history. In particular, Unilever back in the 1930s partnered with the Nazis. What can you tell us about that? Well, even sort of more than that, um, this is a British company and there's been a, a troubleSome history of anti-Semitism and in the British establishment. Now, of course, Britain and Germany were enemies during World War II, but guess whose side Unilever was on? Uh, Unilever uh, had a presence in Germany. They invested in many companies that were part of uh, the German rearmament between the world wars. Unilever took part in the Aryanization program. They fired uh, Jewish supervisors and employees. But even worse, in, in, the, in the wake of Kristallnacht, Unilever acquired a secret interest in a Jewish uh, banking house, very prominent one, very, very rich one. And the CEO of Unilever at the time, in fact, the founder of Unilever, argued that uh, it was important to keep it secret because Unilever did not want to face the moral responsibility of what they had done. Now, the, the point at which uh, the Nazis and Unilever parted company was uh, <laughs> when, when Germany invaded the Netherlands. The CEO actually was Dutch. Unilever was, a, was an Anglo-Dutch firm, primarily Anglo, but, but Anglo-Dutch. And, and that's the only point at which uh, they parted company. So Unilever has a history of anti-Semitism and involvement uh, with the Nazi regime in Germany. And so I think that um, they're very ill-advised to, to get involved now with modern-day anti-Semites. And I'll just about bet that if you ask them directly, are you anti-Semitic, they would all say no. Ben & Jerry's, Unilever, they would say no. Yet the rest of the world doesn't see it that way. Uh, in particular, their board chairperson, Anurata Mattel, um, has recently been, I don't know if you would call it honored, but she's been given a very specific title, Anti-Semite of the Year. Can you expand on that? Well, yeah. Anurata Mittal is the uh, chairperson of, uh, of the Ben & Jerry's Board of Directors, so-called. Uh, a uh, organization called StopAntiSemitism.org gave her the uh, Anti-Semite of the Year Award just a couple weeks ago. Uh, but let me explain about Mittal because we had a role in exposing exactly who she is. She's uh, chairman of the Ben and Jerry's Board of Directors. She's also a trustee of the Ben and Jerry's Foundation, which is a grant-giving foundation. She's also the uh, executive director of something called the Oakland Institute. It's a small nonprofit in Oakland, California. She's the only full-time employee, and it's received $170,000 from the Ben and Jerry's uh, Foundation. In other words, Mittal is on both ends of the transaction. She's both a giver and a recipient. And we argued in a complaint to the Internal Revenue Service that this uh, violates the prohibition on self-dealing when it comes to nonprofits. So that got a lot of attention. But the more significant point, perhaps, is that the Oakland Institute is an anti-American, anti-Israel nonprofit operating uh, out of Oakland. And if you go to Mittal's Twitter feed, for instance, you'll see plenty of support for BDS and, and plenty of... Um, criticism for Israel. And um, she candidly confirms what Unilever said, that she sought a, a boycott of all of Israel, not just the disputed territories. So um, she's been the point person on this. We believe that Unilever should get rid of her. And um, hopefully it's only a matter of time. We've talked about how BDS negatively affects the, 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 the citizens of Israel. What about the citizens of Palestine? 
the disputed territories? What does it do to them? Well, I mean, I don't see how launching economic boycotts in the disputed territories of Israel helps uh, Palestinian people. All it does is contribute to the polarization. The disputed territories, because they are disputed, uh, have sort of a, a tentative existence, and it's not good for the economy. Uh, what company would want to go in and do a big capital expenditure, invest in, in, in a place like that when they don't know what the political situation is going to be in two years or five years? And people in Palestine are, are poor. They're much poorer than they are in the rest of Israel. If you want people to get along, if you want people to cooperate, if you want people to build a you know a society that works, you want them to be prosperous. Well, the political experts will always tell you that if you've got a job, you're far less likely to uh, take up arms against your neighbors. Yeah, yeah. And, and what Palestine needs is jobs, not more hatred and, and violence right. and, and rioting. As a matter of fact, there has been a lawsuit filed against Unilever by a Palestinian who claims that this boycott does indeed hurt the, the Palestinian people. Look, um, the BDS movement is not trying to help Palestine. They're trying to a vision, a failed vision uh, based on totalitarianism and coercion and a hatred of, of religion, of individual rights, of freedom. And th that's what we're dealing with here. I'd much rather look at something like the Abraham Accords, where there's actual progress, where understanding is being built, where people are forgiving old old grudges, or at least they're willing to work with each other to move past them. That's the future, not this hatred that's present in the Mideast, but then peddled in the West. And we're, we're gullible people who are so caught up in hateful ideologies, latch onto it, instead of keeping things in perspective and actually viewing the world as it is, not as they see it through the prism of hatred. You mentioned that a number of states have pulled their investments from Unilever because of their state laws. Those are in states that already have laws on the books. How likely is it for the NLPC to be able to get states that don't have those laws in the books to pull their investments from Unilever as well? Well, um, you don't have to have an anti-BDS law on your books to, to take this measure. Uh, we are encouraging all the states to do it. In fact, we'll be meeting in a couple of weeks with... Um, a very high state official who was recently elected in Virginia. Now, Virginia does not have an anti-BDS law, but that doesn't mean they can't move ahead. And I believe uh, the ticket that was elected in November is predisposed to help, and we expect them to help. Well, the work that the NLPC has been doing in this area is, is super exciting, but is there is there something that the normal, everyday citizen can do to uh, to fight BDS? Yeah, sure. Uh, first thing, go to our website, stopbenandjerrys.com, Educate yourself, find out what's going on with this. And then if you're motivated, and I think you will be, contact uh, your state legislator, your state senator, even your state treasurer and say, hey, what, what are we doing about this in our state? Now, if you live in New York, you know, you're already home free. But if you live in uh, some other state, we need to build the pressure to make this happen. Uh, you can also go to your local grocery store, tell them that you object to them selling Ben & Jerry's ice cream. Now, they may not know what you're talking about, but, you know, print some print some materials off our website and bring it to them and show them. So in essence, you've got to become the louder, squeakier wheel. Yeah, that, that that's absolutely correct. You can, you know, write a letter to Unilever. Unilever has a North American headquarters in New Jersey. Are these resources that I can find on your website? Can I can I get the information, contact information to Unilever at stopbenandjerrys.com, for example, or nlpc.org? Well, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's something that everybody can do. Now, today we're talking about 
BDS, Boycott, Divest, and Sanction, and how it's being utilized against the people of Israel, in particular with Ben & Jerry's, but are there other companies around the world that are doing the exact same thing? BDS has moved on to a company called Puma, and they are really generated a lot of grassroots activity worldwide. And it's possible that Puma, a maker of sneakers and, and sportswear, will cave. And we have argued that if the Ben and Jerry's decision is allowed to stand, it'll just be a domino effect and it'll be the template for uh, corporate America to, to, to ditch Israel. And so it's critically important that we win this one. And a reversal of the Ben and Jerry's thing will take the, the wind out of the sails of the, of the BDS campaign against Puma. That's why we believe this is so critical. Well, Peter, anyone who's been in politics for more than five minutes already knows that no movement, no political movement gets any traction without cash. So what's the funding mechanism for BDS? Ah, good question. Um, BDS is a worldwide entity. There are different kind of BDS outfits. Uh, it's sort of like Black Lives Matter. There's there's more than one organization. So you just okay. so you can't say that, you know, these people serve on a board or this is their funding sources. It's more complicated than that. But you can bet that BDS uh, gets its support from the hard left worldwide and probably from some very, uh, very disreputable people. I can guarantee you that, especially in the Mideast. Uh, with that being said, what is the end game of the NLPC? What would you like to see happen here? The end game is simple. We uh, seek to get Unilever to reverse the Ben and Jerry's decision to end ice cream sales on the disputed territories of Israel. Now, that's about as clear-cut and succinct as you can get. Our guest has been Peter Flaherty. He's the chairman and CEO of the National Legal and Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Today, we've been discussing BDS and how it's harming the people of Israel. Peter, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Tim. Segment three is next, and we'll be talking to an author who has written a new book called An American Divorce, where he discusses the need for the potential divorce between the left and the right in America. Is he right? We'll discuss that next. On Kramer Says. More with Kramer is coming up, and you don't want to miss it. Kramer Says is back next. Welcome back. And uh, our next guest is, um, well, let me explain it this way. Uh, he's a successful entrepreneur, been in business for 35 years. He owns a company uh, in the Midwest that has 200 plus employees, and he's written a new book, and that new book is called An American Divorce. Now, this author is using a pseudonym because he's afraid of the cancel culture, what it could do to him, his company, his family, his livelihood, and so on. So, um, Joe, this is a pseudonym name, Joe Welch. Um, Joe, can you explain why you're using the pseudonym? And then let's talk about your book. Well, Tim, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. So, Basically, it's a difficult decision. It's it's not a secret that we do live in a cancer, cancel culture environment. I do have a relatively large company. I'm under no illusion. If if my book gains traction, I, I know I'm going to have to come out with my real identity, and I'm prepared for that. My family is prepared for that. But when you look at the, the context of what I'm discussing in this book, I, I'm basically targeting the cancer, what I think is a cancer in the American ma marriage when you start talking about groups and writing about groups like Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and you own a, a business, you're going to walk into that carefully. And that's what I'm doing. But as I said, I'm under no illusion. 
if uh, if this book gets out there and if my ideas get out there, I'll be coming public. Uh, I'll be going public with my real identity. Well, you're not the only one that's afraid of the cancel culture in this country. I mean, it's deadly, uh, not only um, for businesses, right? I mean, and they're either burned down uh, or attacked or, or, or looted or whatever, um, but they've also, also gone after the families and, and, and so on. So it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reason to be concerned. Um, so let's explain um, the story uh, of why you wrote the book. It's called An American Divorce. And if anybody's ever talked about divorce, that's not a positive thing in any way, shape or form. So how do we, how do we uh, address this? Your, your approach to uh, the political situation in the country currently is addressing it as if can we take or can we get, uh, can, we, can we have a divorce of the system? So kind of explain that, get into that. Well, my story began in terms of writing the book. Even though I am successful, didn't need to go to college, I went back to a university in Michigan and pursued a political science degree, graduated in my 40s as, again, this business owner. Now, I had taken you know social science, humanity classes in the 80s out of high school, but then I left college, went into business. But when I went back 10 years ago, I'm in my 50s now, and I witnessed what's happening in these universities today, I, I just could not leave that, but I, I couldn't leave that behind. And what I saw happening in the late 2000s, before I ended up graduating with the degree, I started hearing about cancel culture, white privilege, these types of concepts coming out of academia 10 years before any of us even heard about concepts like um, critical race theory. So I sat in a cult-like environment with what I call the devil of this divorce. And that's, that's, the, that's the backdrop for this book is understanding how these leftist academics operate, how they're indoctrinating, uh, indoctrinating millions of Americans. And basically this book is about how to pin them even if it means the crazy radical idea of talking about breaking up the United States of America by geography. Well, before we get there, let me ask you a question. What, where, where do you think the left is going? What's their end game? It's, it's a Marxist end game. It's a Marxist globalist end game. What they, what they have is they have, a, this is basically a philosophical problem uh, that we're living in that goes back to the ancient Greeks to lock. It's basically, what is the full capable capability of human nature? Is human nature flawed to where man has an inherent self-centeredness in our, in our existence is based on power, dominance, regeneration? Or is there this utopia to where 7 billion people on the planet can come together and share everything equally. That's what we're looking at, as ridiculous as it is. And yes, we've been in the real world enough to know that that's never going to happen. That type of Marxist energy explains why half of today's millennials are okay with socialism, why a third of them are okay with communism. And Tim, if we don't get to the root of the cancer, I just feel we're going we're gonna to lose this great country. So um, to answer the question, this is all about Marxism and globalism. 
And it's no longer confined to a handful of hippies at Berkeley. We're talking about half the population being open to voting for somebody like Bernie Sanders and the avowed Marxists. And, and that's the scariest thing we have, because we've seen, you know, time and time again, socialism, Marxism, it doesn't work because it takes away a person's um, need to produce themselves. It takes away the individual. When you remove the individual, right, what happens next? Chaos. We've seen it time and time again. And what do they say? What do the left leftists always say? They always say the same thing, Joe. They say that, well, we know it didn't work in Venezuela. We know it's not really working in, in, in Cuba. We know it's not working in North Korea, but we're going to do it right. Is there a right way to do what they want to do? Do you ever see it being able to be a right situation for what they're wanting to do? Well, in the university setting, I'd, I'd ask that question. I'd say, how do you explain the 50 million deaths in China and Russia? And the answer is always something like this. It was the human and the human beings in charge didn't do things the right way, meaning socialism and Marxism is is the right path forward for humanity. But the people that have tried it didn't do it the right way. And that, again, gets back to a question about human nature. Milton Friedman once asked, where do you find these group of angels that can organize society better than we can as individuals, and perhaps you have a small group of friends and family. Today's intellectuals think that there is this group of, uh, of uh, angels out there, again, using Friedman's language, that can organize society better than we can for ourselves. Who's loving how this is playing out right now? Countries like China and Russia. I don't think Mao in the 1950s could have imagined in his wildest dreams that the United States would be pursuing the same flawed economic policies that he tried with the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution. It's amazing we're at this point in this country. I I think Khrushchev saw it. I think that he saw the path forward because he said that we will destroy you from the inside. And that's exactly what's happened in this country. The intellectuals in this country have gotten into their heads and they spend their time in their heads. I heard a great saying the other day is that people that are in their heads continually will eventually develop a psychosis because they don't have anything else to look at. They don't do anything outside of thinking about how bad everything is. And so they develop their own psychosis and they live inside that bubble and they expect everybody else to join them because they see how dire it is and they don't see the potential. We've got a country that was built on, for, for lack of a better term, capitalism. And it amazes me the number of these kids that will get on a $1,000, a $1,500 phone or a $2,000 computer and bitch about how bad their lives are. They have no idea. So that, that leads us to the next question. The next question is this. The American divorce, what is your image of how we get through that? Because what no one wants is war. No one wants revolution, insurrection, civil war. No one wants that. So in your mind, if we're to move forward and split amicably, what's that process in your mind? Well, I think there's a, a, a great opportunity for either political party to redefine itself and to have more appeal and to where we break through this 50-50 deadlock. Let's take a look at the Republican Party. What are most Americans that are disconnected from politics, what's the first thing they have been programmed to think about Republicans? They think about wealthy white males. So you look and you look at somebody like Donald Trump, 
What did he basically say? He did it by using his instincts, his political instincts, but he basically defeated 17 establishment Republicans by saying the Republican Party is not only going to be pro-business, it's going to be pro-worker. It's going to be pro-America and it's going to be anti-swamp. So in the book, I discuss a new Republican Party that codifies Trump's instincts and puts it into almost a new contract of America. What does the Republican Party stand for today? I, I actually think the best move Trump could do right now is to find the best minds in the country and, and codify and write down a new Republican platform. So there's a chance, Tim, I call this like the best case divorce scenario to where we break the 50-50 deadlock and we do that by attracting more working class folks, meaning the Republican Party will start looking at economic issues in the workplace that perhaps they might have ignored before. Also, I recommend, I think Trump made a mistake in in, in categorizing Latin Americans, particularly uh, Mexican Americans as rapists and murderers. Now, I know there was more to his comment. We all know that, you know, Trump is not always eloquent with his words. But I'm in the construction industry, and I knew that was going to be political suicide, and I saw that. I saw my Latino workers who had voted for George W. Bush move to Obama, or actually move to Hillary Clinton, sorry, in that in that first election. So, When we look at this idea, how can we break the stalemate? I'd love to see Donald Trump articulate a a new Republican Party. And specifically, we need to reach out to Latino and Asian Americans and explain to them why they should be Republicans and not following these progressive elites into the same type of socialism that perhaps they left their countries to come to our country I think there's a great opportunity in that area. Is that too soft of a medicine to fix the problems we have? I'm not sure, but I, to me, that would be an ideal situation. Well, one of the things, and we, we talked about it before you came on, one of the things I've been doing um, <laughs> with, with think tanks around the country is running these war games of what happens next. Um, and we keep landing at the same point is that um, in combination with Democrats and Republicans working together to find out how do we get past this hump and bring people back together, we, we keep getting to the same point that it doesn't end without conflict, some kind of conflict. Now, I don't want that. I, I know that most people don't want that, but I think it's going to be almost impossible um, to move forward and redefine the GOP when we can't even in the GOP agree on what the GOP is, right? So it's going to have to be downsized. We've got, you know, people like Liz Cheney, Kensinger, uh, Flake, who's now, you know, stepped aside, but Romney, um, and even Mitch McConnell down in, in, in Kentucky, right? These, these are not constitutional conservative Republicans. These are rhinos. So how do we move, how do we get them out and weed them out as well? Well, that's going to forward. that's going to happen naturally. See, here's the problem: if if you were to bring in a Mitt Romney, even you know a Liz Cheney, and and talk political beliefs, we'd probably be in agreement with 
90% of what their belief system. Here's what the problem is with those group of, you know, rhino type uh, uh, political uh, candidates. They don't understand that the 1980s are over. Ronald Reagan is gone. And there is a cancer, a cancer that, in my opinion, is is more dangerous to the future of the country than any foreign adversary. And if we don't start learning what the other side's tactics are, meaning understanding people like Solinsky and, and changing our tactics, we're no different than the than the revolutionary, the British Redcoats in the Revolutionary War standing in rigid alignment yep. Yep. as as they're getting shot at from trees. So I see a natural progression to where the, the rhinos are going to be gone. Liz Cheney can say goodbye to that seat in Wyoming. So we're going to see a progression to where we get more radical, um, where we get Republicans who are going to have the stomach and the guts to take this fight directly to our cancel culture foe. And, uh, and I see that happening this year. So from my perspective, let's just accept that's going to happen. And let's start thinking about the millions of Americans who are removed from politics and let's formulate what that Republican Party needs to look like without having the rhinos being part of the, uh, of the discussion. Well, and that's the thing in the conversations that we've had. It's interesting. Um, my personality is I'm a force, a force of nature. I'm an A-type personality. Um, and and um, even in my social media presence, one of the things that I've done is I've, I, I do everything in black and white because that's the world that we should be living in right now. There's right and there's wrong. There's good, there's evil. That's it. And people think that there's this in between. The, the, the Romneys, the, the Cheneys, that group of rhinos, um, they say that they can work with Democrats. But what they've done is, is they've re relented every time. I mean, I, I, where was it I just saw? I know in Virginia they've done this. Um, and I think it's in Delaware. I, I, I cannot be sure. But they, they're getting ready to approve an abortion law that allows the baby to be killed the day of delivery. Yeah, what that's the justification that they can do. So if they can justify that, then they, they can justify anything. And that's the, that's the strength of the left. I don't agree with it, but that's the strength of the left is that they can justify anything. So, so if they can justify anything, right. And then we've got the rhinos that we're fighting against. How do we do this? How do we have this divorce peacefully? Well, if we look back at what Reagan did in the eighties, what did he do? He united two groups of people. He united fiscal and social conservatives. And then the Republicans continued to win elections for the next two decades. If you were to ask yourself today, what does it mean to be a Republican? How do you have any type of emotion uh, tied to what a Republican is? Can we say we're fiscal conservatives in this no. era of $30 trillion? Can we say we're social conservatives no. when we're approaching 100 different genders and, and marriage all over the table? So you can see there's an identity crisis within the Republican Party. Now, I also argue in the book, the Democrats have their own set of problems. And if we can, if we can get past uh, this rhino versus the you know the trump and and, and and know that the future of the republican party again is going to be pro-worker pro-business pro-usa uh, and, and anti-swamp and codify that in writing i think there's a tremendous opportunity to get more people on board to break this 50 50 stalemate um 
I'm under no illusion that this can all be done peacefully. To me, that would be the ideal situation is that, again, we, we find a new Gingrich and we bring in all these minds of how to deal with big tech, a broken system of education, emerging China. We put it on paper and we say, here's who we are going to be. Because right now, the reason the Republicans are losing our country is such a mess. They've given up everything they believed in. They, what, what, is, what, is a, what does a John Kasich or Jeb Bush even believe in? And more importantly, what have they done with their votes and their actions to show what their true belief system is? So I think between the two parties, I'd love to see our side codify in writing a new contract for America in 2022, and then we begin the movement from there. And whether it goes good, bad, or ugly, at least we know what we're fighting for. Do you think that there are, in our current political system, I know there aren't, but do you think that there are Americans that have the backbone that are willing to stand up um, and, and willing to lose everything in the hopes of moving forward? I mean, to me, this is what it seems, this is what it seems like right now. We're on the precipice, just like our founding fathers were. When, when they stepped forward, it was their life on the line. Said so today it's your livelihood, right? They'll get rid of you. They'll, they'll destroy you in any way, shape, or form they can. So do you think that we have enough people in the Republican Party that have the willingness to step forward and then have the fortitude to, to be a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Jim Jordan that do not care about being reelected? Well, I put a lot of study into this area. It's a big part of my book. And to answer your question, no, we don't have that right now. But I can tell you the ingredients that are needed. And studied men like Crane Britton, Eric Hoffer, they wrote extensively on revolutions that um, movements that were coming out of the 20th century. Here's what you need to have, according to these types of intellectuals from the last century. You need to have a clearly defined devil to where there is a level of hatred and hypocrisy that comes from that devil. There's normally a taxation issue when you look at revolutions, and these men study the, uh, the, the British Revolution, the Russian, the French. There, so what, if we can imagine the, the pretext for these types of events to happen in Western civilization, there has to be generally a right people, unlike what the Marxists say, revolutions do not come from the nobodies, the have nots, as Sal Alinsky would refer right. to. Right. They, come, they come from people that have had status in society and they've lost it. Yep. And so you're talking about the, the U.S., the military, uh, you know, being uh, be, the, where the morale and the military is terrible. I refer to these groups as the haves the doers and the warriors that those are the groups that have to have a, that level of hatred and economic hardship to where those passions will move them to risking the wealth they have, the comfort they may have. That's what you need to have in just about every revolution that I studied. And we don't have that now. Now, I would argue the reason we don't have that is the government's just throwing so much money 
at a broken democratic process. They're trying to keep everybody happy. So, of course, you got the, the billionaires who are happy with all the money coming out of Washington, D.C. and out of China. Uh, you've got the people more at the bottom, the middle class. They're happy with all the child credits, the, the money that's so um, I don't know if, if the people in the Biden administration are smart enough to realize what ferments societal change, but one way to stop that is to throw money at it. So the question is, uh, and, and again, I do this in the book, does our side move the ball forward in introducing these Solinsky methods that bring upon the passions that can foster real societal change? Do we take an active role to where instead of viewing ourselves as a majority custodians of society to where we view ourselves as a radical minority and we use methods of agitation and instigation to take this country to the precipice of civil unrest and hopefully radical change where we can get our country back? Well, yeah. so I guess the question is, is, is do we have the time? Because you're starting to see it happen out. Do you, do, we th do you think we have the time to allow the left to eat its own, which is starting to happen? We're starting to see that process play out. Do we have that time? Or, or are we going to have to be, uh, have the spirit of our founding fathers to say, you've pushed me as far as you're going to push me. I'm done. Well, when we look at these types of changes, we saw with... Um, you know, our recent pandemic, how quick life can change. Tim, these revolutionary tensions, they can, they can fer ferment in a very short order of time. Um, but basically, uh, you know, to answer the question, I would like to see a strategy to, to where, again, we identify who we are, and this may seem, you know, surprising to some of your listeners, but I'm not all that excited about what happens in the 2022 midterms. From my perspective, a weak Biden presidency and a Democrat-controlled House and Senate is the quickest way to expose the fallacy that progressivism is the answer outside of California. So from my perspective, I don't want to see our guys in the White House right now. I don't want to see dumb establishment Republicans in Congress getting blamed for everything that wrong that happens in the country. I suggest in the book of perhaps not even voting in the, in the 2022 federal election unless you have an insurgent type Republican candidate. If you have an establishment mainstay senator, I suggest not voting. Because those rhinos, those are the types of people that are, are going to get caught in the crossfire and allow the AOCs, the Bernies, the Bidens, and the Kamalas to escape with the disastrous consequences that follow the path that they're taking. Right, because they're already doing it now. They're, they're still blaming Trump for what's happening today. Right, they're, Joe Biden has not taken credit or blame for anything that's happened since he, got, since, since he was inaugurated. Nothing. I mean, the other day they, they were talking about the unemployment level, right? And, and, and I think this leads back to it because people who have, who have nothing left to lose are the most dangerous people in society. People who yeah. pick up a yeah. lunch pail every day don't generally think about picking up a gun, right? They don't think about revolution. 
They think about getting the getting the the deck done next month. And that's what they've removed from us is the future. The, 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 the left right now, especially with these lockdowns and these masks and these uh, vaccine mandates and everything that they're doing, they've taken away hope. They've taken away the future. You can't plan anything because what's going to happen in, in, in six weeks? You make a plan. You make plans to go to Chicago to a Cubs game. Can't go. Right. Cubs, the, the game's been canceled or you have to be vaccinated or double vaccinated or wear a mask or you know, <laughs> have a butt plug. I mean, there, there's all these different things that you don't know because they're 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 not playing by the rules that we grew up with. So how do you get past? How do you get people to get past to say, listen, it's not going to get better if we keep the people that are in place right now in place because they're not allowing it to get better. Like what Lori Lightfoot said, we're making it difficult on purpose. How do you get past that? Well, Again, it ultimately is the, they believe they're very right in allowing millions of uh, refugees to pour across the border, um, putting George Soros type prosecutors in cities like Chicago to where murderers are, are at home with an ankle bracelet. If we believe as strongly as we do that what this country's had for the last 250 years, that is strong families, limited government, if that is the best way for humanity there has to be an element of patience to let more Lori Lightfoot's, Joe Biden's be able to govern in, in a real world scenario so that the, the voters in the middle can finally see what happens when you allow these, where they can have a California moment and see what happens with expanding crime rates, uh, $5 gas. I'm telling you, I'm not suggesting it. Th- th- you can poke a lot of holes in, in my theory and say, Bill, what you're saying, or Joe, what you're saying is that um, this could take 20 years. And I don't see the millennial generation Y or Z having the passion to fight the fight that I think is the fight of our day. So there is an element of time on making this happen. But from my perspective, a Joe Biden presidency and a Democrat-controlled Congress and more of these Lightfoots and uh, and Gavin Newsom's. And we need to get them some real action in the game so we can see how incompetent Give they are. Give them enough rope to hang themselves so the, the and, American people can see them for what they are. And at the same time, we retrench, we rebuild, we redefine who we are, what our plans are, even if that means losing elections in the short run, we go through this retrenchment period and allow them to, like you said, you have enough rope to hang themselves. Can that generate a paradigm change or do we have to move the needle further and, uh, you know, get into tactics, uh, which I describe in the book is where, where folks like us start talking about accepting and saying, listen, red and blue, we're never going to get back together. Let's discuss in a public forum what a geographical breakup of the United States would look like. Let's try to get a a state-sponsored Article 5 convention to where 34 states convene to have a convention. And we we put red, the, the red speakers out there, the blue speakers, and 300 million people listen to the America that they would want to live in. I don't know what you've been smoking, but I want some of that. Yeah. 
here's here's what again going back to the war games that we've played and we keep talking about the same things how do we do this peacefully and we keep going back to there's never been uh, a time in history to where that happened to where one group that had control relinquished control uh to give it to another group that they you know didn't agree with so the 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 question is is how do we do that peacefully do you see a way that People are, especially, let's say the people of California, we're already seeing that they're they're making their choice by leaving those states. Those states are going to continue to do what they're doing. They're not going to change because the power base is still there. So how do you get those people out? Or do you say, that's where you go? If you don't like conservatism, if you don't like a red state, you've got to go to California. I mean, how do we, how do, we do that effectively? The discussion, I'm not going to suggest let's grab a bunch of guns and run onto a hill that's not going to be the answer you know well, i agree fact, I, I, yeah, I agree that's i'm yeah, not calling for that yeah, either yeah and uh yeah just you know how do you expose these folks i'll tell you one way is just again allowing them to have that rope and to start laughing at them when you start getting the the bill mars and the i think steve harvey just came out what do these types of extremists all have in common? Arrogance and self-righteousness. So I contemplate in the book, again, by letting them have unencumbered access to all of the people in this country, can we create a mass movement to where there is a McCarthy-like moment in this country to where we realize all of this cancel culture, this microaggressions, this taking Americans and dividing them into 20 ethnic categories, that it's a joke that these people are so wrong and they need to be exposed. Am I, again, can that happen? I mean, ultimately, another thing I contemplate, if you look at this cancer in the marriage, it's at the universities. Yep. What, good is, what good is it to win the Senate and the House and and we don't change anything that's going on at the Ivy Leagues or in our public schools. So again, I ask, how do we get people with such diametrically opposing views to come together to agree on where we take the country next? Well, so if you look at if you look at the center of the country, and again, we'll go back to what we are discussing that are the preludes to making radical societal change and create a paradigm change. Again, those people in the center have to have a level of hate and hypocrisy of the ruling elites. Now, I've seen some of that with COVID. Yep. Okay. The leftist overreach that we've seen, that's going to peel. I don't know what the percentage, but that's going to peel 5, 10, 15% of folks that would otherwise vote for a Democrat. That's going to move them away from that. So, again, when we look at how do we foster this change? Beyond the hate and the hypocrisy, there needs to be economic hardship. There needs to be group fragmentation and a demoralized military. So we can go through that, that list. How much hate exists in the country between two sides? Got a, we've got a, a pretty good level. I want to throw one more in there. Debt, debt and taxation are very important. To, so you, get, you again, look, what is our situation there? How long can we keep printing money to conceal our problems? So you look at the hate, you look at the debt, you look at a group of elites 
and you exploit their hypocrisy, which the right is finally starting to do. The left has been doing that since the 60s. They realized from Saul Alinsky that if you learn somebody else's playbook and understand it, <laughs> that no human being can live up to their playbook. So you, as Alinsky would say, you club them over the head. Yep. So imagine if our movement, again, begins with a clearly defined vision of who we are, and we start using agitation tactics to create that level of hate and hypocrisy, that gets us into group fragmentation, which you can argue we're balkanized today. We have that ingredient. And then that gets to a demoralized military. And let me tell you, Tim, when you start seeing members of the military not getting a COVID vaccination, yep. that to me is a precursor that there's some things very wrong going in our woke military. So when I look at all these ingredients that that can, in an overnight fashion, lead to civil unrest and a new paradigm change. I see all of those elements happening. The question is, what's going to put it together? And the question you and I have to ask, do we want to become radicals from the outside? Are we tired of allowing the left to, uh, to, to, to force companies into being woke? Do we want to do our own homework on how many of those boards a board of directors at a at a Apple or an Amazon, how diverse those boards are? Do we want to force the left to live up to the standards that they want the rest of us to? If we're willing to use those type of tactics, I write about them extensively in the book. And again, define who we are. I think that's going to be the antidote to solving just all the leftist overreaching craziness that you and I could probably talk about for hours. Well, and that's that's the issue. We, I've been saying for a long time that um, people do not act without pain. They ha there has to be. I mean, a great example is why do you go get a doorstop? Well, because the door keeps opening up and you don't want it to do that anymore. And you're tired of dealing with it. So you go get a doorstop. Right. Why did you buy a car? Because you didn't want to walk the 12 miles to work. Right. There's always a pain that drives somebody to do the next thing. And, and we utilize that in marketing and advertising all the time. Um, but that pain point has to be at a point where it drives them. What we have right now in the country is that you've got military members that spent 20, possibly 30 years in the military that have been forced to leave the one thing that they love into an economy that is not performing at the top. We've got these mandates that are forcing more people to lose their jobs. They're not being able to find new positions because of the economy. Um, there's a point, there's a precipice where there's no return, right? You've got more people out of work. You've got a, an economy that can't feed itself. Inflation goes through the roof. And what you've got is a, a situation that happened in Kazakhstan last week, where the entire government just resigned because they knew they were going to be lynched if they didn't. Now, the Russians have gone in to kind of help, you know, smooth things, things over, but they're reforming. Um, it, you know, in a perfect world in the U.S., that's what we would see. But it's not going to just be, uh, you know, Kazakhstan, for example. And you were talking about, um, you know, um, the uh, Scandinavian countries earlier on is that these are countries that have three million, five million. Right. Even Canada only only has 30 million people. We have 10 times more people. So the question, it keeps going back to, and I, and, I, and I keep trying to get to it, I want an American divorce that is amicable where mom and dad split and they go their own separate ways. Um, it's the kids that are the issue because the kids can't get along. So do you see um, a situation where Indiana becomes its own country? 
We become much more like Europe. You know, North Dakota is its own country. California is its own country. Is that the way that we get to an American divorce that is peaceful? And the United States, states the federal government is dissolved to an extent and we reform the federal government? Well, what you're talking about is could we go to more of a Canadian model where the provinces, in our case, the states have right. more power than the, the, the federal government? It's too late for that. There's too much debt coming out of the federal government. There's no way now to just stop that train and say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to peel off a portion of Oregon, Washington, California and go our own way. Nor will that happen. That would have to be approved by the Supreme Court, which gets into changing the Constitution. So when you see these types of secession movements in states like Texas, California, that's not going to, it's not going to happen that way. And we also, both red and blue, need every player. What if on they the just team. abandoned the Constitution, though? If Texas decides to secede, they no longer have to abide by the Constitution. That's what happened in the Civil War. That's why habeas corpus and all of that was suspended is because the Constitution was no no, no longer valid for half the country. So how so so that part of it, when you decide to secede, you don't abide by the old laws anymore. Right. So here's here's how that would happen. I don't know the math of how much money the government gives the feds give to Texas, but that'd be the first that'd be the first card to be played. So every benefit that Texas gets and you can even look at Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, they would cut those off and that would stop that type of movement. I'm pretty convinced that would stop that type of movement. I think you'd have to have a pretty radical set of circumstances to see that. And that's why I go back to the concept of having all of the states convene, even if it never happens, but to where we can all have clearly defined battle lines of what it is to to be a red or a blue America. I think if there's going to be any peaceful or amicable division in this country, it's going to happen in the context of a state-sponsored Article 5 convention. Okay. So, best case scenario. We go to a convention of states. We work out our divorce. That's, That's best case. What's worst case? The worst case is, and folks like Justice Scalia warned when he was alive, that you do a convention, there's really no rules, ground rules. Yep. Once you sit down in that setting, the, the racial fault lines, every fault line that we're seeing now could turn the country into an immediate mess, into a, an ugly civil war. That's the risk of going that route. Um, And and are you labeling it as a civil war, as citizen against citizen, or citizens against the government, which is a revolution? Citizens against the government. Yeah, that's what I see. Worst case scenario. Uh, We're already starting to see that happen in school board meetings, right? That's where, that's one spot where um, the citizenry is going head to head on a regular basis with those that are elected. Yeah, I, I, I love seeing that. If you look at the Tea Party, the problem with the Tea Party is they tried to play under the rules that the left has established. They wanted to be very careful of being politically correct, of not stigmatizing a particular group, and they played it too cautious. They were, were they on the right track? Were their ambitions correct? Yes. 
But I argue, Tim, that unless we're willing to get as ugly as the left are at exposing, <laughs> again, this cancer in academia, uh, we're not going to win this battle. So right. I, 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 again, I, I know I can't give you a great answer on how much violence, what's the role, what's point A, point B. But I can tell you that I, uh, I envision a series of points that, again, begins with us defining who we are, bringing in more Latino and Asians where they are comfortable with what it means to be. There's 85 million of them in a country of 330 million. We need to get them on the team. We need to, we need to expose a Harvard. I, I'd like to see Trump, instead of going to Kansas, to going in front of Harvard and, and asking why they have personality tests to, uh, to bring in students. Um, you know, to bring in right. incoming freshmen. So yep. I get into all those types of tactics uh, of agitating the left. And at risk, the risk is if we play the same tactics as they do, the, the worst case is it will be a civil war. And, and we, are, we are very close to that happening. If we move from being, again, the British Redcoats to using subversive tactics and beating them at their own game, how did somebody like Washington take a bunch of laymen and farmers and defeat the greatest military of that time? What did he do? He understood their tactics. He used them against them. And he created the devil. Who was the devil? It was those, those redcoats walking around towns and created that level of hatred to where those, those men were willing to fight a fight that few of us could ever imagine because they hated what those red coats, red coats stood for. That, again, is the precipice into getting the change. And again, we like to hate Nancy Pelosi. In a, in, in a democracy, she is, she is the antecedent por portion of this. We need to go to the root cause and demonize it, which is academia. And again, that is why I would love to see an ex-President Trump holding rallies at the Ivy Leagues. I, in the book, I teach students how they can be classroom radicals. We've got to cut academia and identify and put the bullseye on them. Is there a chance that we could expose them and not have to go through all these crazy scenarios we're talking about? There's a chance, but there's a better chance that they've poisoned too many minds to where we're going to have to orchestrate a paradigm change that could involve widespread civil unrest and, and many unintended consequences. And I think that's what's going to happen. I, I That's where I tend to go. And, and I think what it'll be is, is I don't, it will not be a January 6th type moment. I don't think you're going to see a bunch of conservatives or those on the right, you know, running up against uh, Capitol Hill in any state or in any, uh, you know, or in D.C. I think that what will happen is I think it'll be a spillover of civil unrest, you know, uh, another George Floyd moment. And that's where you see the groups of men show up, what we're calling the, the gray beards. <laughs> you know, it's going to be guys like us that do it, that stand up and say, we're done. No longer will you burn and loot our cities because you're, you're throwing a tantrum. That's where I think it's going to start. And then I think it's going to be an escalation thing. Um, I, I think that it, you'll see like what it was uh, in the Civil War, where when the one battle happened, the battles, the Battle of Gettysburg, for example, when it happened, that wasn't just a battle. That was a draw for more troops. That was a draw for more people to become involved, to say, yes, we've got to stand up to fight against this evil. So to do what a Alinsky was basically asking the left to do, it's more natural for them. It's not natural for us to play right. a George Washington card. 
And another important point I want to make is in all the studies of previous revolutions, no group has ever won a revolution unless they had the support of the military. So that's an important point in this discussion. Well, let me and ask I, you this. So, let me, okay, so, so th- that is a valid point. So let me ask you this. Do they need to have the, the, the support of the military? And I'm using air quotes. Um, do they need to have the support of the military or ex-military? Um, the word that Crane Britain uses, the predominant support of right. the military. Right. And again, this goes back to every revolution over the last 400 years. So I suspect that's why people, like when you look at the Secretary of Defense, they want to purge these right-wing elements they're alarmed at how many people in the January 6th um, were active or ex-military because I have a feeling the smart people that are, you know, on the left, the Democrat side in the military know that it's game over for who doesn't have that predominance of support from the military. Right. Well, I just don't, I, I don't see, I don't see the 22 elections happening without issue. Uh, they can't. The Democrats know that if Republicans, even if they're rhinos, um, the American people are going to put them in office um, because of what's happened over the last two years in particular, but the last 11 months in, in specifically. And they know that they're going to jail. Some are going to jail. They're not going to allow that to happen. Right. They're, they're just not. Um, and that's what I fear most. We, we, we've got a situation where the Supreme Court is currently hearing information about um, should the government have the right to force you to have, you know, a drug put in your body against your will? Does the government have the right, the authority to do that? And we've got Supreme Court justices that are spewing misinformation um, that is so far off base that it, it, it's irresponsible for her comments to even be put in print because somebody will still believe them, even though they're false. So with that being the case, how again, <laughs> how do we get people together to say we want this to be amicable. If we couldn't get the country to acknowledge just how egregious this whole Russia collusion hoax was for two right. and a half years, that may have been the most subversive attack on our democracy in the 250 years that we've been a country. If we can't get the uninformed voter to take an interest in that issue, I'm going to tell you, we're not going to unite anyone without, again, going back to these elements that I talk about, hate, hate, anger, and, and, and basically money, meaning you had a nice middle-class job, and it's gone, and it could be gone forever. We're not going to have that. We're not going to have the change without those elements. I'm convinced. I spent years studying it, and I am convinced that... Um, that we're not going to have uh, we're not going to have a mass movement unless we start using different tactics. And again, I want to I reiterate: I don't care about the 2022 midterms. I want to continue seeing these people expose themselves for the socialist frauds that they are, from from the college level all the way up to elected officials and everybody in between. Yes, because unless we start attacking tenure and academia and a whole host of issues that will never get solved in the democratic process. If you think about it, what can we solve 
with how broken our democracy is. If you're on the left, are we going to be able to solve climate change with Republican obstruction? <laughs> no. And if you're on our side, are we going to be able to break the back of academia, fix public education just because the Republicans win the Senate and the House in November? No. And that's why I argue we have to look at a much bigger picture that uses te techniques of exploitation to basically to have that McCarthy-like moment to where what these people are doing is ruining this country and unnecessarily dividing us. And again, um, I don't, I don't care about the 2020 election. Right. I'm, I'm looking you. well I'm beyond that. I'm with yeah. you. I, 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 I think it's, it's a waste of time and energy. And, and, and unless we've got people with a backbone um, again, people with nothing left to lose uh, or, or people that are financially set that they don't have to make another dime, right. They, they can live on, doing the right thing as opposed to trying to, to, to pay the mortgage. I don't think we get there. I, I, I think that the system is so far broken. Um, I, I, it's not that I don't have faith. I have faith. I just don't have faith in the people that are there right now. There's one uh, remaining important point when you look at some of these previous revolutions. The American founders were not poor. No. They were some of the wealthiest citizens in the country. Yep. They were the one percenters. So... Right now, what you're seeing is the hate and the angry, uh, angerness is coming from white males. Because if you look at what I saw in academia, the demon is the white male. Yep. And everybody else, women, blacks, Latinos, they're all being, they're all being stifled of their God-given potential because of the devil. The, the devil is us, Tim, just so you know. Yep. And... Um, I'm asking that we switch that dynamic and put the bullseye on the real dynamic, but there's hope in this country. We're not like the Scandinavian countries. We're not Europeans or Canadians. We, our roots are based on wealthy people that were willing to give all. I mean, Benjamin Franklin split his family to pursue, you know, the freedoms that we enjoy today. Yep. So Americans are uniquely different. And again, in terms of your timing question, if this doesn't happen in the next five or 10 years, I do think it's too late. I, I, I think China becomes the big winner and you think everything. Do you think it'll go that long? I, I'm not going to pin the time, but let's just say that I don't think this has to happen in one year, but I think 10 years, it's, it, it'll be too late. So I don't think we question, get out of 22. I don't think we get out of 22. I don't think we get out of 22. I agree. 2022 is going to be amazing. But I'm going to go back to our friend Solinsky. He told the hippie to go get a damn haircut, buy a suit. And if you want to create radical change, you move into the institutions that your enemy occupies and yeah. you, you learn to take them out that way. I would argue that if we don't play a smart game, that if we fall into the easy right-wing stereotype of doing something crazy and then going on the defensive, that we're not going to win this battle. So let me give you a few more specific. Uh, see, I'm going to fight back. I'm going to fight back on that. I'm going to push back on that one because we don't do that. One day, one day. And now we're finding out that the people that were key and pivotal in the, 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 the crimes that happened that day, that they weren't on our side. Meanwhile, the summer previous, 
We saw DC burn. We saw Kenosha burn. We saw LA burn. We saw San Francisco burn. We saw Seattle burn. We saw Oakland burn. We saw Portland burn. These are, that's the image. They're the violent ones. We, we have jobs. We don't go protest. We don't go to the streets. You didn't see, you know, conservatives out in the streets doing that. Tim, I know how it'll be positioned. I know how the left will position it and how the media will position it. I, uh, I haven't disclosed this before, but I also was at the January 6th. I saw the same thing you did. I had wished throughout the whole course of the morning that I brought every one of my grandkids. You saw uh, yep. grandparents. Yep. There were a million people there. This was not about 100 right-wing crazies. This was about patriots who care about their country. I get that. But you have to understand the left has been using tactics for 50 years. We're finally, and the rhinos still haven't caught up on what's going on, <laughs> but people like us are finally coming to the conclusion that we're close to being beat. Yeah. But we have to beat them using a very sophisticated game plan of agitation. And again, how can we do that? If you're a Republican in the Senate and the House, I'd forget about Pat, any bipartisan, all I would do is expose hypocrisy yep. of all these progressive elites. What do you do if you're a Republican state? You go, you initiate acts of disobedience against the federal government. You push them to the precipice to where they have to start thinking about make, doing radical changes. What do you do if you're a college student and you're conservative? You learn how to expose these, the professors, rateyourprofessor.com, watch putting everything on a laptop. There are, I want to see Republican haves, the Republican billionaires, instead right. of putting money yep. into universities and to giving them to rhinos, I want them to start yep. funding mass movement patriots. It can be done, but if we don't do it the right way, we're going to peter out and we're going to be a, 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 the last flicker in a burned out candle. I just don't see how we get out of this. I, I don't. And, and, I'm an, and I'm an optimist. So it's good to see that there are others out there that see a path that, that I don't see. And, and if, if, if it's possible, I'd, I'd rather go down that path. I'd rather just get mom and dad, get a divorce and the kids figure it out. Right. Uh, but, but I think we've got to do that here soon, um, sooner than later. I don't think we have five years. I, they can do too much. Joe Biden and his administration has done way too much damage. Uh, in the first year that he's been in office. So with that being said, I, first of all, Joe, I appreciate you coming in today and, and having this conversation. Uh, tell us about the book. Tell us where we can find it. Um, and uh, any other information you want in closing? Do you have a website and so on? Let people know where to track you down. Uh, thanks, Tim. I have a website, anamericandivorce.com. The book can be bought on Amazon. And, uh, you know, let's Let's do what it takes to get the country back. You and I may disagree on timing and methods, but if we start having these kind of conversations, I'm confident we can learn how to change tactics and expose the lunacy that's going on in this country today. And I couldn't agree with you more. Thanks for coming on the show today, Joe. With that, we're wrapping up uh, the first episode of the Kramer Says Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, not all of them will be this long, but uh, we wanted to launch this first one with a couple of the issues that we're really wanting to focus on. Um, we've got corporations that are running the U.S. right now, and in fact, running the world, and determining what you get to see and what you get to hear and what you get to say, um, as well as leftists in this country that, if given the opportunity, would take away every one of your freedoms and not even bat an eye. 
And so from this point forward, the information that we look at giving on this podcast will focus on those issues. Um, our our pushes is, is two things. Here's what's going on, and here are your rights. So we'll be talking about constitutional rights. We'll be talking about state rights. We'll be talking about the rights that you have as a human being being born in this country, as well as what's happening around the country and how those from other political ideologies are trying to rip the rights away from you. That's what we'll be doing here on the Kramer Says Podcast. Again, thanks for joining us, and we will be back in two weeks. See you soon. The mission to keep fellow conservatives up to date. The goal to keep you educated. Get more at KramerSays.com. KramerSez.com.